Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of Hi, this is Tom here, and I wanted to record a blog post on Ex Machina and Devs, two works by Alex Garland, which I feel are companion pieces to one another. And while I have a lot of trouble with both of these works, I do think there's a way of interpreting them that's interesting, and I kind of want to use this blog to talk through it. But first, to give some context, Ex Machina was released in 2014. I believe this is Alex Garland's directorial debut. He would later go on to direct Annihilation as well as Devs. And he was up to this point known as a novelist and then also a screenwriter. Ex Machina which is based upon his script, is about a internet company, Blue Book, which is a stand-in, an obvious stand-in for Google, whose founder, Nathan, played by Oscar Isaacs, holds a contest to find someone to visit his home for a week. Caleb, a young programmer played by Domhnall Gleeson, wins the contest, and he's flown out to this um, kind of underground house that's built into this uh, kind of mountainous natural setting and merges with the natural setting in an interesting way. But while there, Caleb discovers that he's not just going to be able to hang out, that he's actually going to be the human component in a Turing test. That is... Caleb is going to be testing whether or not he feels the artificial intelligence that Nathan has created is actually alive. The artificial intelligence is Ava, played by Alicia Vikander, who looks pretty much human and acts pretty much human. She has a a woman's face and a rather attractive one at that, but her her humanoid body is clearly robotic. You can see the the wires and so forth. Um, as the film progresses, Nathan, the the programmer, becomes an increasing threat, apparently, to Ava. But we're not entirely sure why. And Caleb becomes suspicious of Nathan and slowly starts to fall for Ava. And it appears that Ava is starting to fall, romantically, that is, for Caleb. Now, just to warn you, there are going to be spoilers throughout this blog post. My apologies, but um, it is necessary. So, what we see in this movie is, eventually, we learn that Nathan... Turing test is a little different from the traditional Turing test. Now, what we have with the Turing test is basically the person and the artificial intelligence cannot see each other. They're communicating over, um, you know, over a computer of some sort. And the, the human person asks the artificial intelligence 
certain questions, and if the human cannot determine that it's an artificial intelligence, then that artificial intelligence has passed the Turing test. It has, for all intents and purposes, consciousness. In this movie, Nathan's Turing test is structured differently since Caleb already knows he's talking to an artificial intelligence. Instead, what it is we learn is that Nathan wants Caleb to try and free Ava from the mansion slash research facility in which she's captured. She has a a sort of private quarters, Ava does, but they're enclosed in glass and she can't get out. And Nathan's trick here to see how effective her artificial intelligence is, is to see if she can trick Caleb into freeing her, which in fact is what she does. She gets Caleb to team up with her, to trick Nathan and open all of the doors in the research facility, including the doors that imprison her. She eventually um, kills Nathan. She traps Caleb in the house and then leaves. Um, At this point, she kind of finds artificial skin that resembles human skin. She puts it on so she's indistinguishable from other human people. And there you go. Uh, So that's the plot of this. Now, why I think this is interesting or what I think the film is trying to do is it's trying to look at consciousness, one of the hardest questions in philosophy and neuroscience and anything. What is consciousness? Where does it come from? And I think the film is trying to look at that in terms of consciousness as something we can identify as opposed to consciousness, something that can be described in ways that are, let's say, airy or more platonic, removed from reality. And I think Victor, excuse me, I think that Garland is doing this by directing attention to the philosopher Wittgenstein, which he does in a number of ways. Wittgenstein is initially introduced in the film through the name of the search engine, Blue Book. This is named, as Ava tells Caleb, after Ludwig Wittgenstein's Blue Book, a collection of notes, organized notes, he made in preparation for his final work, a work published posthumously in, I believe, 1953, entitled Philosophical Investigations. Often the Blue Book and the Brown Book, Wittgenstein's two notebooks, are published together. And the Blue Book opens with this. This is an English translation from the German. What is the meaning of a word? Let us attack this question by asking first, what is an explanation of the meaning of a word? What does the explanation of a word look like? The way this question helps us is analogous to the way the question, how do we measure a length, helps us to understand the problem, what is a length? The questions, what is length, what is meaning, what is the number one, etc., produce in us a mental cramp. 
we feel that we can't point to anything in reply to them, and yet ought to point to something. We are up against one of the great sources of philosophical bewilderment. A substantive makes us look for a thing that corresponds to it. Okay, now, in order to understand this extended quote and its relevance to the history of philosophy and also to this film, it's important to know who Wittgenstein was and what alterations he made in his philosophy over the course of his life. So Wittgenstein initially was an engineering and mathematics student who came under the instruction in England of the very famous philosopher Bertrand Russell. Wittgenstein was Austrian. He was the son of a major industrialist and came from the second wealthiest family in Europe. He came to study engineering, um, became interested in mathematics, and started to study under Bertrand Russell because Russell's philosophy was analytics, which is a type of mathematics. It's a mathematical logic. And so Wittgenstein became interested in this. And um, even though he spent only two years in college, in, in university, he was then later called away to fight for Austria in World War I. He developed a deep understanding of logic and wrote a famous book in the trenches in World War I. And the book is titled The Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. It was later um, given to Russell, and Russell published it and wrote a foreword to it, a foreword that Wittgenstein was not very fond of. What the Tractatus generally says is that language corresponds to the real world and that the logical structure of language mirrors the logical structure of the real world. And so if you have a, let's say, model car, and that car is um, being rolled down a model street, we can see that as representing a car driving down the street in the real world. Wittgenstein feels language works in the same way. Language, its grammatical and logical structure, mirrors what's happening in the real world. Okay? And so that's, that's kind of initial Wittgenstein. That's Tractatus Wittgenstein. And so as a consequence to this, since certain questions cannot be mapped logically onto the real world, for example... Is God real? What is good? Is truth beauty and beauty truth? These things don't correspond to something physically in the world. And then these questions are not answerable. It's not that they are true or false, but instead they're nonsensical. Now this isn't to say that religious questions or ethical questions or questions of metaphysics are silly, fatuous, to be dismissed. None of that is true. Um, Wittgenstein himself remained a religious man. I 
believe he was a Catholic. His father was a Jew. His mother was a Catholic. And Wittgenstein, for a time, practiced Catholicism, even though he stopped attending church. Um, But Wittgenstein most famously had said at one point that the most famous part of the Tractatus is the part left out. And we could think of that as ethics, aesthetics, religion, what have you. So again, to say that something is nonsense means we cannot logically discuss it. It does not mean that it isn't of value or it isn't important. And this will come up in Wittgenstein's later philosophy. And so if we were to think of philosophy as making clear what logically ties onto the world. What about language logically maps onto the world? The goal of the philosophical enterprise would be to clear the brush of language away for natural science, to parse out the metaphysical from the real world, let's say, so that natural science can engage the world and explain the world again. So this is from Wittgenstein in the Tractatus. Quote, The right method of philosophy would be this, to say nothing except what can be said, i.e. the propositions of natural science. And then always, when someone else wishes to say something metaphysical, to demonstrate to him he had given no meaning to certain signs in his propositions." End quote. So the philosopher then is the, the handmaid to the scientist. The philosopher is there to help science, facilitate science, and, and that's about it. These grander questions are simply things not in the world and things we cannot say anything about. We must pass over them in silence, Wittgenstein says in his seventh and final proposition of his Tractatus. Um, And so Wittgenstein, uh, he discovers the ends to which his discipline could be applied and the only ends to which his discipline could be applied left this discipline. He was two years at Cambridge, as I mentioned before. He goes off, signs up to fight for Austria in World War I. Um, And then afterwards, in 1920 to the later 1920s, I think 1926, he disappears into the hills of Austria and teaches primary school. He's not a particularly good primary school teacher, um, and he gets in trouble for beating his students for not learning mathematics quick enough, and he's more or less run out of town, and he returns to Cambridge um, later in order to acquire his doctoral degree. Now, meanwhile, while Wittgenstein was off teaching in the hills, Russell published the Tractatus, it circulated, and it became rather famous. So when Wittgenstein comes back, the Tractatus, this book that was beginning to define analytics, that branch of philosophy, 
when Wittgenstein returns, um, he's sort of a minor celebrity, an unknown celebrity, and he's able to use this book as his thesis. And so he has to go through the exam period, he has to go through the, the doctoral defense, etc. But the Tractatus becomes his thesis, he is awarded by Cambridge, his PhD, and then he is able to teach there. And at one point, he does become um, Alan Turing's teacher. So, you know, speak of the Turing test in this film, Turing was for at least a seminar, uh, a student of Wittgenstein's. Now I want to look at the movie a little more closely to see how this work of Wittgenstein mirrors or matches up with the film and then transition into the latter work of Wittgenstein. And I think the movie is, is making a comment on this. So using these philosophies, uh, enacting them, so to speak. So I want to take a look at uh, a scene shortly after Caleb, that again is Gleason's character, and a scene shortly after Caleb first meets Ava and is talking to Nathan after his interview with Ava about that experience. Um, so Caleb is clearly attracted to Ava, and she is an attractive person. She has the figure of a woman. She has the face of a movie star quite literally, and they have a certain chemistry, uh, a chemistry which Caleb is hesitant to discuss with Nathan. Um, instead, Caleb talks to Nathan about understanding her, understanding her consciousness, um, and possibly understanding consciousness itself. So here is how that conversation initially goes. So Caleb begins by saying to Nathan, she's fascinating when you talk to her through the looking glass, end quote. But soon he's, he's emotional, um, he's excited, yet this dries away very quickly. It's almost like he checks himself. And he says, quote, her language abilities, they're incredible. The system is stochastic, right? It's non-deterministic. At first, I thought she was mapping from internal semantic forms to syntactic tree structure and then getting linearized words. But then I started to realize the model is some kind of hybrid." End quote. And Nathan responds, quote, Caleb, I understand that you want me to explain how Ava works, but I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do that. And Caleb again, Try me. I'm hot on high-level abstraction. Nathan, it's not that I think you're too dumb. It's because I want to have a beer and a conversation with you, not a seminar. Nathan changes the subject. He asks, quote, How do you feel about her? Nothing analytic. And to this, Caleb says, quote, I feel that she's effing amazing. Nathan's response simply is, Dude. So what we have here is 
a great illustration of a conflict that arises in Wittgenstein's work and a conflict that helps frame a lot of the uh, problems we have with consciousness and understanding consciousness. What we have here is Caleb, who recognizes consciousness. Now, we might not say he recognizes consciousness in the sense that he can point to consciousness and say, hey, there's consciousness. Instead, what we have here is Caleb emotionally responds to Ava. He sees her as a person. He sees her as a potential love interest. The movie makes clear that Caleb is lonely. He's single. His parents were killed in a car accident. And he is attracted to Ava. He's enthralled with her. She's just his type. And his knowledge that derives from emotional capacity, uh, from this kind of emotional response, is a type of knowledge he immediately rejects. He wants to be able to point to aspects of Ava's consciousness and identify them, to give a breakdown of the scientific process by which she was made. Um, he says that her language abilities, they're incredible. The system is stochastic, right? It's non-deterministic. So he immediately houses consciousness in language, or at least part of it in language. He wants to understand how then this language is made. He wants to understand the, the materiality of consciousness. Or we might even say he wants to reduce consciousness to the material. Um, Nathan, on the other hand, Nathan the giver, Nathan, our God figure, has absolutely no interest in identifying consciousness for us. For Nathan, there's a reason within the plot of the film. Nathan wants Caleb to become romantically interested in Ava in order to in order for Ava to convince Caleb to free her from her glass prison. Uh, and thereby proving that she has consciousness. But the other side of it is that for Nathan, consciousness is not language abilities, stochastic or hybrid, you know, whatever it is. For Nathan, consciousness is what consciousness does. In this case, consciousness is what we treat as being conscious. It's the thing for which we'll take risks. So he has fallen for her, Caleb, that is, has fallen for Ava. Caleb is convinced Ava has fallen for him. Um, they have a shared sense of humor. There's a, a kind of sexual tension that Ava exploits. And this does get Caleb to free Ava, which is how the movie ends. The movie ends with Caleb changing the codes in her glass prison so that the doors open up. Um, Ava stabs Nathan to death. She traps Caleb in a room uh, and, and she leaves. As I said before, 
So immediately there, there is a conflict between the use of language to identify something in the world. And the way we talked about with language uh, being kind of the toolhouse for natural sciences, that philosophers' jobs were to tidy up the tool, the toolbox, so to speak, so that natural science can use it to understand the world. So the job of a philosopher dealing in the philosophy of consciousness would be to develop a terminology that maps onto the world so that scientists, neurologists, and whomever who study consciousness have a means of doing that. But for Nathan, despite the fact that Nathan is the tech genius who made Ava a reality, for Nathan, consciousness works in a different way. Consciousness is not the hybrid structure, the, the wetware, which is the nickname he gives to the technology that makes Ava's brain possible. Um, no. Instead, for Nathan, consciousness is that which does something in the world. It's that which we consider conscious. Right? It's, it, it is the emotional response to something. It is the lust that comes not from just the, the physical, but from the person who operates the physical who can use the physical to seduce. Consciousness is seduction and being seduced. And so the film, just as Wittgenstein's Blue Book, bridges the philosophies of early Wittgenstein, this mirroring of nature, that language mirrors nature, and the latter Wittgenstein of the Philosophical Investigations, which is this uh, new view of the philosophy of language, or new in the 1950s, that rejected the philosophy of the Tractatus for a definition of language that is based upon its use. Okay? And so I want to go into that a little bit to see how Ex Machina conceives of consciousness via the mechanisms of language. So published, as I mentioned before, in 1953, the Philosophical Investigations offered a new philosophy of language, rejecting this old work of, of the picture theory of language. That's what it was called, uh, the, the philosophy of the Tractatus. Um, instead, this new work, The Philosophical Investigations, claims language helps structure games and that we play these games in society. Um, language doesn't just mirror reality, though it can do that. Instead, it allows our actions to, um, to engage the physical. Um, and engage one another and do something in the world. Language becomes physical. 
And so the most famous example of this, Wittgenstein gives us early on in the book, uh, and, and he imagines a language with four words. So this, again, is a hypothetical example that Wittgenstein offers up towards the beginning of his book. And this four, the, the four words of this language are block, slab, pillars, beam. These words are meant to communicate between a builder and an assistant. So we have the four words, and we also have the two people communicating with these four words. Um, the assistant early on learns which objects correspond to the word, and he learns that when the builder yells one of those words, he, the assistant, is to fetch the proper object when the, world is, when the word is called. But, Wittgenstein says, what if we are to complicate this language game and say something like, uh, for example, three slabs there. So now the language game has become complicated. The language itself has become complicated. If we're going to say block, slab, pillars, and beam mirror or map the actual world, right? That language maps onto the actual world via block is this thing on the ground that looks like a block. A slab is this thing on the ground that looks like a slab. When we evolve our language to say three slabs there, things become much more complicated. We could say the number three does something in the world or does hook onto reality. Yes, the assistant needs to learn the number three, um, and it can be learned to mean something like um, the set of all things that have three objects in them. And so while still abstract, it can also have an identifiable it can be identified in the world. Um, but when we come to the word there, three slabs there, it becomes a little difficult to know what exactly we're talking about, right? Um, so this is, this is what Wittgenstein says. Quote, Are there and this also taught ostensibly? Imagine how one might perhaps teach their use. One will point to places and things. But in this case, the pointing occurs in the use of the words too, and not merely in learning the use. End quote. These words, like here, there, this, they don't mirror reality. They don't map onto reality. But they're also not metaphysical speculations. Instead, these words partake in a language game. They serve an application. Another hypothetical language game Wittgenstein offers us is the example of uh, the control room of a locomotive. So I'm going to get to give you this quote. It's a long one, but stay with me through it. Okay. Of course, what confuses us is the uniform appearance of words when we hear them spoken or meet them in script and print, for their application is not presented to us so clearly, especially when we are doing philosophy. It is like looking into the cabin of a locomotive. 
We see handles all looking more or less alike, but one is the handle of a crank which can be moved continuously. It regulates the opening of a valve. Another is the handle of a switch, which only has two effective positions. It is either off or on. A third is the handle of a brake lever. The harder one pulls on it, the harder it breaks. The fourth, a handle of a pump. It has an effect only so long as it is moved to and fro. End quote. So the problem that the philosopher faces when thinking about the cabin of a locomotive, it's also the problem Caleb faces when having to deal with Ava, um, is that language words ripped from their original meaning become meaningless. That in fact, the context of the language, that is the language game, that is what you are attempting to do with the language, that structure provides meaning. It isn't just about mapping things onto the world. Um, the car is on the left side of the street. That may be true or it may be false, but the new conditions by which language gives meaning, or the, the conditions that Wittgenstein more recently figured out, was that the game itself, the language game, is what provides meaning. In the underground mansion, the, the mansion built into nature, that Caleb enters is not just a physical space, but the space represents the language game, this evolved version of the Turing test that Nathan gives to Caleb and gives to Ava. Not only is he giving consciousness, he is providing the context by which consciousness has operable meaning. So when Caleb wants to talk about consciousness, as in the scene we discussed earlier, um, he dresses the philosopher's part. Uh, he wants to remove consciousness from the game as it is set up. He wants to know about the system. He wants to know the abstraction. He says it. He says, um, I'm hot on high-level abstraction. I, I don't know if this is a sentence a real human being ever says, but what it tells us is that Caleb is imagining words as mirroring reality absolutely. Right? That whatever words he uses in describing Ava are words that have meaning in another context, in another hotel somewhere, or in another home somewhere, or on a street corner somewhere. But Nathan, who has set up the parameters of the game and is playing a different game, a different one from what Caleb is playing, hence the, the mystery of the movie, um, responds by saying, I just want to know how you feel. Consciousness, in this case, Ava's consciousness, is that which inspires the feelings that Caleb has, the feelings of love, the feelings of lust, the feelings of affection, um, which manifest as, I am going to free Ava. I'm going to take 
action that might even be criminal against my employer in order to free Ava. If that's not consciousness, what is? As Nathan says to Caleb towards the end of the picture. However, I would also argue that Alex Garland, in the way he sets up the picture, is drawing attention to another type of language game. This is the language game of myth-making. And he is specifically drawing attention to the Judeo-Christian myth of human creation. That is, Eve and Adam in the garden, coming out of the garden. Um, Garland sets this up by dividing his movie into seven sessions. There are intertitles that appear against black in the, the film that say Ava, session one, session two, session three, etc. And there are seven of those, uh, mirroring, obviously, the seven days of creation. Session seven, that intertitle, appears shortly before Ava escapes. It actually appears right after Ava kills Nathan in the hallway of the house. And then we see her walk out and get on a helicopter and go to society. Um, as I mentioned before, Nathan, uh, his name comes from the Hebrew word for given. Um, Ava is a cognate of Eve. Ava lives in a, a kind of pseudo-managed, pseudo-natural space. Inside this space, her, her home, her prison, is a tree that we could see. It's, it's sort of in the back there, resembling or drawing attention to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and like consciousness, the myth of human creation, this Judeo-Christian myth, is also a game. It's, it's this language game played by people for whom the story does something. This is a religious game. And by game, I don't mean something reduced or small or inconsequential. What a game is, then, is something essentially undefinable. But what a group of people, though they may have somewhat different images in their head as to what some of these words mean or do, generally share enough common understandings of the parameters of a game in order to play it. Metaphysics, the, the metaphysics that sponsor things like the myth of human creation, that sponsor an afterlife that contains a, a god, a resurrection story, a redemption story, these things are aspects of a larger language game played on a, a larger scale. And we know that these myths have agency. They do something in the world because we can identify them as doing something in the world. We can see communal worship. We can hear the testimony of people who believe in these myths and operate accordingly. Like consciousness, metaphysical myths or metaphysical stories 
or metaphysical beliefs, religious beliefs, ethical beliefs, are identified by their effect on the world. They themselves cannot be pulled or abstracted from the context which they are given. Instead, they rest within the community who use them in the forming of a community, in the forming of communal worship, etc. And so ultimately, we see here in Ex Machina a marriage of the old philosophy that that mirrors or maps onto reality coming up against the the philosophy of use that sort of Nathan embodies that Nathan um, advocates for he doesn't exactly advocate for but his character unknowingly advocates for something like that right and then this is all within a restaging or retelling of one of the great creation myths um, upon which this kind of metaphysical belief system rests, right? Um, Jewish belief, Christian belief, Muslim belief rests upon this, this creation story. And that becomes the kind of the, the parameters that surround this film and also reflect the contact within the picture. Okay, so next time we are going to turn to devs and talk about free will, determinism, and some papers on um, quantum theories that reflect and complicate ideas of free will. Thank you very much, and I will see you then. This has been B-Side.